Hey, what is going on everyone? It's me, Mr. Mario, and welcome back to another episode of Mod Chat. For those who do not know, this is a podcast I do here in two different forms. First of all, it is available here on the Mr. Mario 2011 YouTube channel in a video visual form, where if you want to see what's going on, sometimes we do some show and tell, sometimes there's actually something more hands-on, but also just uh, covering the articles and all that if you want to see them on screen, that is available. However, if you want to take this around and listen to it wherever the hell you want to, like an actual podcast, you can of course check it out on most major podcasting platforms. I know it's not available on all of them, but it's available on most of them. Simply look up ModChat, all one word, on your favorite podcasting app, host, or provider, and you should hopefully be able to find it. Either way, this is a show where I come on here at least once a month and I talk about whatever new things I find interesting, neat, cool, or that I want to delve into a little bit in the world of video game console modding and all that other fun stuff. Now, I do want to say here, first of all, my apologies. I know I did say I do this at least monthly, and last month I did end up missing this episode. It was just my own thing. Uh, Scheduling-wise, it did not work for me between uh, personal things and schedule and all that stuff, so I wasn't able to get out an episode last month. But I decided to make up for it by not only doing episode 100 here, since we are, wow, 100 episodes into mod chat it's gone through a few iterations but on top of that uh go doing a longer episode uh so if you see the time length on this is longer than normal uh don't worry that is by design uh so you're gonna see some older topics on here but also i just wanted to go a little bit more out for this episode episode 100 this is a this is a big deal here uh and i did want to say for anybody who has been sticking around here whether this is your first episode watching and listening or you've been here since one of the earlier episodes thank you very much i i i never thought it would actually get to 100 episodes i'll be totally honest uh but i did kind of build in something for that which is why i've always titled them you know in the certain way i have with the three digits as opposed to two digits digits here so let's see if we can do 100 more we'll see if we can do that but either way uh let's get into these topics here and just see what's going on this month and i guess last month maybe a little bit the month before that Alright, so I know this is older here, but I did want to start this off because this kind of went into March as well as April. Well, what ended up happening here pretty recently was the PlayStation 3 got hit with a new firmware update in the form of firmware 4.90. Now, I'd expected this here as well as many others. I know it was a little bit of a meme as well too because we're what, so many years now into the PS5's life cycle and we're still seeing updates on PS3. And for the most part here, here, really the biggest change has been um, as usual on these later near end of life updates for the PS3 it's really been updating the AACS keys uh, so if you want to play newer blu-ray titles and media like that you would need to update your firmware so that's certainly nice to see however there's been this huge thread over on PSX place that's been covering it and one of the first things we saw here we end up seeing several good releases here now the reason why this thread here was so big was because uh, we end up seeing a new release kind of a redux in a way you could say uh, we end up getting the ps3 flash rider back now this is a unofficial upgraded version of it and it is working for firmware 4.90 uh, now stl cards ws goes over all these steps here and essentially for anybody who might remember it from back in like the ps3 4.82 4.84 4.85 days this is how it looks now in its current form for 4.90 
As you can see, this is giving shout out and props to the PS3 exploit team, Evonat, Costarez 1, Little Ballop, and Juni, uh, who had all either worked on it or, I guess, here in the form of PS3 exploit team, they really provided the open source original working files to work off of. So this was good to see because for quite a while now, we had been missing a, I guess, trustable, like fully trustable, properly working uh, online only, or I guess web browser based uh, way of installing custom firmware on the PS3 on the latest firmware. I know with all the issues the PS3 exploit team has had with the sites going down, uh, as well as the PS3 toolset going down, and then even mirrors of that coming up, which uh, I had not recommended to anyone. I did not promote those on here uh, because there were known issues for those. So, uh, that's why there was really a need for something like this. And even at the time when this had released, uh, we were still waiting for the PS3 toolset to come back up. So from what my understanding is, is that this group of people, they were actually working on this for firmware 4.89, and it was pretty much done, and then 4.90 dropped, and they had to go back and just update it and retest and do everything else to make sure that this worked for 4.90. Uh, now this is cool because at this point here, and I'll get to this later, we do have uh, a couple methods of using the web browser now to modify the PlayStation 3 with custom firmware on the latest firmware, which is nice to see. First of all, of course, we have the unofficial Flash Rider. Now this here is, I would say, safer and more improved than the original one, and it seems to work pretty darn well. Uh, however, it is harder to use uh, just because you do have to, well, it is recommended to host it yourself and everything. So I have made a video covering that. Don't worry, it's not like super impossibly difficult, but if you're familiar with hosting a local web page on like a phone or your computer or something and then accessing it from another device, you can get through this here mostly easy. Uh, but they did make a lot of things automated on here, uh, which is also nice, and they really simplified it. So it's like here, for example, you're just selecting your USB device, you pick which flash type your console has, you have to run the checks, and then you go through the rest of the process, which is really dumping the flash, verifying it, patching the system, all that fun stuff on here. So since that ended up releasing, Evonat also released his own custom firmware as well. Now I had talked in a previous episode about the PEX custom firmwares uh, that Evonat had released for 4.89, and those are cool because essentially what Evonat did is he took the 4.84 development modules and ported them over to 4.89. Uh, so he did the same thing here for 4.90 firmware, meaning that if you've been looking for something like an up-to-date version of the Rebug Full firmware that we haven't seen since 4.84, uh, you can actually find something pretty darn similar now uh, because you're able to have access to those development modules and you can even convert your system over to a DEX or development system, uh, which is all super cool to see. So we end up getting that big release and even just hitting on these here right quick, you could see, of course, uh, for all of this to work, for the CFW flash rider to work, uh, you do have to install HFW. So it was cool to see Juni had come back and released the 4.90 hybrid firmware. We'd also seen PS3 HIN updated to 3.20. A new 4.90 dual boot firmware, Irisman and Webman mod updated for 4.90, as well as additional tools like the Pi PS3 tools and the Pi PS3 dump checker that of course would be recommended to use. Now, I also wanted to cover this post real quick as well. Uh, this is from all those tools, and this had kind of gone a little bit under the radar, but I thought this was 
unfortunate and a little bit funny all at the same time here. Uh, the original post here from FFF256 says, by the way, regarding the firmware, and they're talking about uh, the 4.90 official firmware, because there were reports that 4.90 was actually bricking some systems. Uh, in regards to that here, FFF256 says, by the way, regarding the firmware, many users caught a soft brick when downloading the firmware, which was uploaded to Sony servers in the early days from this MD5 right here. Now the servers have firmware with this different MD5. I understood correctly that you ported the vulnerability to 4.46. What new did you find in a nutshell? Uh, it's mainly this top one we're going to be talking about here. So Aldo ended up replying here saying, it looks like you got the first official firmware 4.90 shop edition with that MD5 that was mentioned here. He has the link to it and he says here, this wrong link is found in this page under reinstall PS3 console system software. The correct official firmware 4.90 retail is this one and with the corrected MD5. The good link is available right here under update using a computer. Unfortunately, at the moment of this post, Sony still hasn't fixed this fatal mistake. Uh, I'm not sure if this has been updated here. I could check and see real quick, just try these here real quick. So here I'm on the official site and reinstall and we're going to download this. Also, this is cool. I used to recommend this website for a while, but it looks like it went down. So I didn't even know this was back up until now, but uh, here's this. We're going to come. Oh my god. Okay, so they still haven't fixed that mistake. All right I am currently recording this well over a month after that post was made and that mistake is still there So that is unfortunate here that quite literally if you are clicking on reinstall ps3 console system software You're going to get a incorrect version of the firmware you need to get the one that says update using a computer even just as a reminder here again i'm on the official site and if i go to update using the internet it'll get this so it looks like here just based on that post it seemed that the original download like on the ps3 itself was uh the shop firmware while as clicking here update using a computer this one would be correct but this one is incorrect. That is uh, not great. <laughs> and that's what I thought this was here, but I did want to double check my source here. So according to the PS3 developer wiki, if we are talking about shop firmware, uh, essentially, let's see, uh, this would be really intended for IDU mode, which it says here IDU stands for interactive display unit. The PlayStation 3 consoles displayed at Walmart are different from consumer units. They are unable to play some consumer software and have a built-in demonstration mode, which requires a password to access the important features. When a firmware update is performed, the disk and instructions will read PS3 IDU version dot, you know, firmware, along with the date of the update. Uh, note, all interactives must be a IDU console. So, uh, really, this would just be for demonstration systems right here. Uh, I think it's interesting that the shop firmwares are still updated. That's interesting to see. That's funny. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, it looks like, quite literally, if you officially download the shop firmware, which is pretty easy to mix up on there if you're reinstalling your system firmware, you can soft brick your PlayStation 3. Now, thankfully, since it is a soft brick, uh, really the way you would fix this is you would just download the proper update and install that over. So that's totally fine. Uh, but yeah, just, I guess you'll have to avoid this one here. Uh, <laughs> Interesting to see. Now, a couple weeks later, uh, B. Garville ended up making an appearance again with the PS3 toolset being back, and he kept it short and sweet here in his post saying, Hi everyone, it's been a while. 
Just wanted to let you guys know that the official PS3 toolset is finally back online and accessible at ps3toolset.com. Note that HTTPS access is still possible in theory. However, the SSL certificate isn't PS3 browser compatible, so you should just use the plain HTTP instead. In terms of security, it should make little difference as no sensitive PS3 information is ever exchanged with the server anyway. Data is processed locally. Restored version 1.2.004. Currently, live supports firmwares 4.8 to 4.89. Support for 4.90 firmwares is currently being added. An update will be pushed in the coming days as soon as testing is complete. My apologies for the long wait since September. It couldn't be helped at my end, unfortunately. And I know since then, uh, actually, SSL has been updated here. Uh, there's been a few posts from him, but SSL has been updated, so that's totally fine. Yeah, he talks about it right here, where now all HTTP requests should be redirected to the secure channel. Uh, and he's still talking about updating 4.90, but 4.90 is working on this as well too. So indeed, you're able to access PS3 toolset. Now formatting looks a bit odd here because I am accessing this on my computer here, but it's actually been updated and downgraded, I suppose. Uh, you can see that firmwares as low as 4.75 are supported, but 4.90 is supported. And you could even see in the latest update, he had added 4.90 support, 4.89 PEX support, uh, 7.8, 7.6, So super cool to see this. Uh, very welcome to see this here yet again. Just because this tool is really great, if you're installing custom firmware, it makes it easier, safer. It does a whole lot of lifting for you in terms of really a lot of stuff you'd have to check manually. It just does this all for you automatically. And on top of that, there's now really no need to use any of the PS3 toolset unofficial mirrors that were out there. So uh, we have the original stuff back, which is great. Still continuing on here on uh, April 1st of all things, this was not a joke, but uh, STL Cards WS ended up posting a PS3 HIN update, kind of just overall uh, conclusive post here, and uh, this is for PS3 HIN 3.2.1. Now, we had already seen PS3 HIN 3.2.0 release for 4.90, uh, but this one here is still working for 4.90. It has some additional fixes, such as a webman mod bug that was causing issues with freezing in 3.2.0 that hit a lot of people, but this has also now been backported to work on older HFWs, which is great. So, we can even check the change logs right here. And we could see a whole lot of stuff that, you know, support was added for the 4.84 DEX firmware, updated DEX resources and stack frame, added support for 4.83 firmware, re-added support for 4.82 official firmware, updates to PS3 HIN GIN and added make file, some additional installer changes here, such as bytes will be written by WebKit if HIN is being loaded from HTML, so HIN can set the installing flag, a few HIN plugin changes, such as adding a check for webman mod, and if installed will download package with webman mod included, only if HIN is installing, so that should hopefully fix up that freezing issue. If you had an older version of Webman Mod ever installed and you were installing the latest PS3 HIN on here, it's got Cobra updated to version 8.4, update the PS3 MapEye core version to 1.24, add a check for HIN installing, so boot plugins text will be deleted if HIN is ran from the installer HTML, again that helps with that, and update the UMD PSP blacklisting and fixed spacing. 
super cool to see. Also, some debates here on whether uh, the hen in the logo is a hen or a rooster, and it looks like it is indeed a hen for anybody who is wondering. Now, still even on that topic, I talked about the backport on here, but it looks like we got another HFW. Not only we had Juni come back and release HFW for 4.90, uh, but we also had him release an update for 4.83. Uh, this was interesting to see, and I think this is certainly just one of those releases where it's like, hey, we're just going to do this and release it because we can. Uh, realistically, I don't think there's anybody on 4.83 firmware who is absolutely dying to stay on that firmware and run PS3 HIN, but if you want to, you're now able to for the first time. Uh, for anyone who does not remember, 4.81 and 4.82 is when the initial PS3 exploit tools came out. They were patched in 4.83, and then PS3 exploits tools didn't make a return to form until 4.84 came out, which is where HFW released. So 4.83 just got skipped entirely uh, years ago until now in 2023. Now there's not too much to say here. HFW really just accomplishes bringing the old WebKit from 4.82 onto newer firmwares. So therefore, you're able to be on a newer firmware with an outdated WebKit, which is compatible with the exploits that the PS3 exploit tools end up using. Uh, however, on here, uh, I did have a mention, this is a cool release, but as you can see, I think this was a little bit of a missed opportunity, uh, just because this released on March 31st, and I did say in here, I said, this is a cool release, but it would have been a fantastic April Fool's joke, so if this just came out one day later, I think this would have been a great release, but it's still a good release nonetheless. I think it just could have been used as a joke, but not really joke, but either way, cool to see not only one, but two hybrid firmware is released. Now, before we leave the PS3 entirely for this episode here, I did want to also highlight this for anybody who might be interested. This is from B. Gearville, and it is community-funded hosting services. Reading this directly here, last summer, we called for donations. At first, the idea was to keep the PS3 exploit sites alive for the next three years, but we quickly realized we could extend the hosting services funded by the community to other community devs or contributors who may need it for no extra cost. Here is a very short summary of the services available. FTP access for your hosting space, unlimited storage, unlimited bandwidth, email addresses and webmail site, SSL subject to browser compatibility, PHP 7.3 to 8.1, MySQL, as well as regarding the domain name, you can bring your own domain name or use a subdomain of our consoleprojects.net domain. So here's our proposal. If you have some project you wish to share online with the community and you require free hosting services, you can post in this thread and mention Escort Do or myself. Of course, it goes without saying that dodgy illegal projects will be turned down. This purpose is for legit content only. Ideally, the community should take care of the project contributor vetting process, though. I do not think it wise to leave those decisions and responsibilities to just one person. Community feedback and suggestions about all this stuff would be helpful. Hmm, I almost forgot. Thanks to all donators, you guys made this possible. So, definitely cool to see. I, I know that is an issue that does plague this, unfortunately, where uh, there's a lot of services out there, a lot of apps that do require a web page and a backend and everything. And uh, even though the apps and services might be free, 
all the hosting and everything is not free. Uh, so I think this is cool to see that they were able to really, you know, extend this out to community members and community devs. So uh, if you are a developer or know of a developer who wants to work on something like this and you're needing some hosting pages and space here, it might be good to reach out to Begearville as well as Escort Do if you are interested. Now we're going to go back to the PS1 here, kind of, sort of, in a way, and uh, this is actually with the Legend of Dragoon I guess reverse engineering project and effort here, uh, a great game on the PS1, which has unfortunately for the most part stayed on the PS1, uh, but here this is uh, Legend of Dragoon Java. I do like to highlight these when I do see them here, but just reading off this here on the GitHub page, this is a project to reverse engineer Legend of Dragoon into a high level language with a modding API. This is not an emulator, but simply code disassembled and rewritten in Java current progress. Game engine is functional with a few major graphical glitches that don't negatively affect gameplay. Modding API is currently in development. No music support yet. Sound effects work with some issues. Game is fully playable with no known crashing. That's awesome to see. Uh, if you're interested in playing, they do have a player guide here, and as well as if you're interested in the code, a strong knowledge of Java and MIPS assembly is recommended. If you are interested in contributing or just curious, the following steps should get you up and running. So essentially, you'd have to clone the repository, copy your ISOs that you've dumped, uh, rename them in a certain way, and uh, get through the rest this here with opening up the repository and running all the project. It looks like uh, Java 17 is required, so just noting on that. And then all of the buttons here have been assigned to keyboard shortcuts, So, or I guess uh, keys. There we go. Uh, so that's super cool to see. I am checking out the webpage here for all of this and even scrolling down here. Awesome. It has uh, the current issues that were mentioned here, uh, aside from, you know, no resolution scaling, and then a whole lot of added features like the keyboard mouse support, low latency input, near zero load times, unlimited save slots, uh, skip FMVs, one through 64 item slots, uh, just so much more on here. I guess this is called the Severed Chains platform, but the setup guide here uh, seems to be pretty simplistic as well too. You install Java, you download the recommended release, you extract it, you drop the ISOs in once you back them up, and then you run the launcher and you're able to play it after that. So. Super cool. Another PS1 thing I want to highlight here, I did see this here on Twitter now a couple of months ago, and I thought this was neat. Uh, so they're saying here, From Software's PS1 game Shadow Tower has just received a mouse injector mod for the Duck Station emulator, and the same thing is now in Kingsfield 1 and 2. So if you are playing these games, oh wow, that looks so much better. Okay, uh, I've never played Shadow Tower, but I tried Kingsfield 1 back in the day, and I did not like it. I think this is the first one one here. Um, <laughs> my thoughts on the game aside, this looks so much better to play. All right. So if you're wanting to go back to one of these games, you know, it might be worth playing this in Duck Station and using a keyboard and mouse on here. This looks a lot better. All right, this is looking good. Now let's move on to the PS2 and something pretty big, which is hard drives and solid state drives, which are over two terabytes in size, can now work on OPL, uh, as well as enabling multi-BDM devices. So for example, if you're wanting to use a hard drive, a MC2 SIO, and a USB drive all at once on your PS2 to load games from, 
you're able to do that here. Uh, this has been thanks to a new pretty big update from Grim Doomer here, who has done some awesome work in other scenes, uh, and he has made some changes into, at first, his own build of OPL. But just reading the initial thread here, Grim here says, I've been working on a new build of OPL that has some much improved support for storage devices, and I think it's ready for the first round of testing. Here are the major features this build includes. Support for XFAT, formatted internal hard drives with proper LBA48 support, which means you can now use hard drives larger than 2 terabytes. The 2 terabyte hard drive limit is now gone. The new limit is now 144 petabytes. Gee, bis, all right. Uh, support for multiple USB slash BDM devices at the same time. This means you can now have two USB storage devices plus a MX4 SIO, iLink, plus internal XFAT hard drive all at the same time and load games off of any of these devices. Super awesome. I've been testing this on my fat PS2 with two 16GB USB sticks, one 64GB MX4 SIO card, and a 16TB internal hard drive. All devices formatted with FAT32 or XFAT. I'm now looking to get as much testing on this build as I can in order to fix any remaining bugs and get this checked into the main OPL repository. Besides no longer having a storage limit for internal hard drives and being able to use multiple USB BDM devices at the same time, the process for copying games to a hard drive is now easier than ever. You no longer need to format as APA, use WinHIP, HDL dump, etc. Now you can use built-in support in Windows or Mac OS to format your hard drive as XFAT and drag and drop your ISOs through the OS File Explorer. It's that easy. I've even made a GIF that demonstrates the new process for copying ISOs, click to enlarge. So just checking this out here, this has been playing, but essentially he formatted his drive. He makes a new folder here for DVD, and then he's able to copy and paste whatever games he wants into there, just like so. Super awesome. Now, the limitations here he states with this build are that while this build of OPL should be fully backwards compatible with free hard drive boot and APA formatted hard drives, you will not be able to use an internal hard drive formatted as XFAT if you're using a free HD boot. Currently, there's no way to mix APA and FAT XFAT on the same hard drive. He also states this build only supports up to five BDM devices at a time. So I guess if you really want to go all out, you can go with that. So, um, But he's saying here this limit should be enough to connect two USB storage devices, one iLink storage device, one MX4 SIO card, and one internal hard drive. So <laughs> there you go. I mean, that's plenty of games right there. It is nice to have this change here because I know for the longest time people have wanted to run over two terabyte hard drives on the PS2, and I know some people have kind of gotten around that just by having multiple two terabyte drives. Uh, however, this ends up adding, of course, uh, not only blowing past that two terabyte limit, uh, but on top of that, also allowing this easy copy and paste and just really drag and drop uh, files right here. Uh, now, the only thing I can really think of is really from what I know with the way uh, OPL handles games and such, it would need the games. Well, I guess it doesn't like fragments on the drive, so it would need them defragmented on there. Really, if you have your drive fragmented, even if it's flash storage, you will just run into issues trying to boot up your games and everything. So uh, really for that, it'd be recommended if you're using an actual like spinning hard drive uh, to actually defrag it uh, once in a while. And if you're using flash storage, you don't want to defrag your flash storage, like a USB flash drive, a micro SD card, a solid state. So at that point, it would actually be recommended to like copy and paste all the files off of the drive 
format it and then recopy them back over in in that way uh, so that's maybe the only thing to look out for if you're going to keep adding games just look out for fragmentation on there but this is certainly something if you're going to add your games like in one shot you hopefully shouldn't have to worry about that and still really awesome here to see now some sad scene updated news right here this is from developer Turt, and we're going to go through a little bit of a memory lane here but he states here for a variety of reasons it's time for me to move on from the playstation hacking scene i'm very thankful to have met some great people through this hobby over the years and for the boost it's given my security career some of the highlights for me were and we're just going to go into all this here uh being the first to publicly hack the ps4 kernel by porting over an existing bad iret exploit without any kernel dump here he's talking about the uh 1.76 jailbreak that we had back in the day you can see back in 2015 uh looking for ps4 free bsd kernel vulnerabilities and successfully finding and exploiting my first zero day uh free dvd boot this one was awesome here uh defeating the copy protection of my childhood console the ps2 to allow unmodified consoles to run burned discs of either retail games or unofficial homebrew games that one we covered extensively on here masticore being the first public ps4 ps5 userland exploit targeting a game instead of part of the operating system making it the only one still unpatched on the latest firmware revisions and finally here working with the playstation team through the bug bounty program and successfully being awarded several ten thousand dollar bounties so overall i do want to wish c turt the best he did i mean look he's got a really awesome laundry list of just really great accomplishments that he done and sought after here and released to the public here i think this is awesome so wherever you go whatever you do c turt uh, best of luck to you this has been super awesome with your time here however with a part of this here he did end up releasing the part two that we were hotly anticipating several months ago for Masticore. This was hacking the PS4, PS5 through the PS2 emulator, and part two was covering the compiler attack. Now, I haven't looked at this here directly, but from what I understand, this page was unfinished, so he ended up just, you know, releasing it as is, or maybe did a few changes here, and he even states in the previous article, I explained how I successfully escaped the PS2 emulator used in the PS4 and PS5 through PS4 backwards compatibility to allow execution of native ROP chains. In this article, I'll explain how I use this context to attack the compiler process with the goal of gaining full arbitrary native code execution on the PS5, not just ROP. Now, I'm going to kind of quickly glaze over this here because I'll be honest, I'm not a developer or a reverse engineer here, so a good amount of this is really going to go over my head on this, uh, but he does cover this in depth here and really covering what exactly he did as well as the vulnerabilities he used, which seem to be three, so pointers in shared memory, an out-of-bound write in manually inject function, and an out-of-bound write in the write relative jump. Uh, but what we're really looking at here is, well, here it is mentioned that he never finished the exploit, sorry, but when summarizing the primitives outlined already, it seems reasonable that it would be possible to develop this into a complete exploit, taking over the compiler process. So here he says, being able to place large amounts of arbitrary data into the compiler at a known address using the bridge shared memory, defeating ASLR of the compiler binary sections through leaked pointers in the bridge, 
having an out-of-bound write vulnerability that spans the entire heap, and writing out-of-bounds into the heap to corrupt instruction mapping cache, and using an oracle to determine which index was corrupted to learn the exact base address of the heap. Highlighting the aftermath, he says here, in my previous post, for various reasons, the operating system was not designed to enforce games to be on their latest version. And so the fact that there are games with special privileges is an oversight in their security model, as it leaves privilege code with no readily available mechanism to be patched. Some commenters disagreed with the above interpretation because PlayStation could still technically prevent exploitation on later updates, even though I already addressed this in my original post. I stand by my assessment because the options for doing so would be terrible, creating a software deny list that would have to include some physical disks, or bundling binary patches for games in the OS itself. Anyway, as I predicted, PlayStation decided to not redesign their security model and build a mechanism for enforcement of game patches. Instead, they have accepted the reality of just-in-time compiler processes potentially being permanently compromisable, and attempted to limit the consequences of this. Whilst I can only speculate on PlayStation's motivations, I believe their main concern regards the theoretical scenario of this being used to load patch retail PS4 games into the process and trying to boot them. The PlayStation decided they could mitigate the risk by placing a limit on the amount of just-in-time code allocatable. The limit is 65 megabytes. And here in a later update, he says for the PS5 firmware 6.00 and equivalent of PS4, introduce a new global variable that I call allocated just-in-time memory towards limit. Its main use is in system just-in-time SHM create in the file located here, which looks something like this that he says. And there's corresponding code to decrease the counter when freeing just-in-time memory. We'll cover the conclusion here, which says, There's a reasonably good chance that with enough motivation, the vulnerability described in this post could be exploited to take over the compiler process. The exploit would allow arbitrary code execution on the latest firmwares of the PS4 and PS5, allowing native homebrew applications to be run off USB storage, for example. Even with the mitigation Sony shipped in response to this research to limit the size of applications that could be run, I still believe it would be possible to run larger applications, albeit with the performance overhead of them being partially emulated or dynamically paged in and out. With the amount of work required, I don't realistically think we'll see polished demos of Linux or retail PS4 games running, but it's fun to think that there's a good chance that theoretically those things might be at least technically possible. And he gives thanks here to Flats, Balika011, The Flow, Chickens, and PlayStation. So uh, I think this is a good thing to wrap up on here with Seatert. Now, something cool to see here going to the PSP with uh, Buccanero's latest release, and we've seen him release on several different consoles here at this point, but he is the person who works on Apollo Save Tool. He has now released 0.7.0 for the PSP, of all things. Uh, this is the first public release, and you see this dog right here, cute dog, but uh, you know, rest in peace. He does dedicate this release to Luna in loving memory from 2011 to 2023. So this dog had a real good life. Now over here, he says that this is a PSP save game management. So you're able to import and export saves. It has param SFO hashing, cheat code patching, and you can export to a zip file. Save data decryption and encryption as long as you have the game key itself. Uh, option to auto install save game 
key dumper program, an online database with PSP saves for over 400 games, networking code used libcurl with TLS 1.2 support, the Apollo patch engine 0.4.1. So this has the uh, save wizard or game genie cheat code support, as well as you're able to brute force save data cheat scripting support. It includes PSP save game cheat patches, uh, miscellaneous tools such as zip and 7-zip archive extraction, and uh, this is cool, uh, VMP PS1 mem card re-signing. So you're able to export a VMP PS1 mem card to MCR format, and you're able to Im import a MCR formatted like PS1 memory card to VMP. Uh, I'm interested in these cheat patches here. And yeah, it looks like there's just a ton of safe patches that are added in here overall, so real awesome to see really cool just uh i love seeing that this has been really released on pretty much everything at this point like we've got uh yeah we have it on ps3 ps4 uh vita i know we have that but now psp as well so uh, again i just uh, i love seeing the support here all right let's cover some xbox related stuff here first of all we are covering this from uh one friend of the show here mr malenko and uh, i've covered a little bit of some of his work before uh, but here this is a release that has been worked on which is pinecone uh, this here is a content sniffer for the original xbox now just a quick how-to he says to download the id database json file download the appropriate binary for your platform and the working directory should look a little something like this then run your binary from the command line right here and really just covering this, what this is actually about. Our buddy Harcroft has been keeping a rolling list of missing content for nearly 20 years. And really this missing content, we're talking about uh, game updates and DLC for the original Xbox. The idea of this software is to cut out as much of the manual digging as possible and expand on it as a tool to archive this data. How does this work? You drop the U data and T data folders into a dump folder, analyze the dump for user data and DLCs, user created content, content update files, and optional, analyze the dump for homebrew content in C, E, F, and G folder structure. Here, the to-do list states to dissect disk images, import archive dumps, export output for easy viewing, add more flags for more specific searches, and create a homebrew JSON file to identify homebrew content. So this should hopefully make things a bit easier. And yeah, for anyone who does not know, uh, since the original Xbox Live is, you know, no longer available, uh, there has been DLC updates and just user-generated content that has been lost to time, but it's still sitting on hard drives on systems that probably haven't been powered on in 5, 10, 15 years. Uh, so really what the recommendation has been recently has been, hey, uh, if you're getting one of those systems, always look at the hard drive and see what content is on there and please dump it. So uh, this is hopefully helping out here with that. Really the idea would be you would need to dump the contents of the hard drive, so you'd need to, uh, you know, have the hard Hard drive key and unlock it uh, or if you you know modify your system you're able to FTP and dump everything from there through your network really you just need to get the hard drive contents you plug it up in here with this tool and you're able to scan for content on there and hopefully find something that might be missing now we went from the original Xbox all the way to the latest Xbox and this is something I want to talk a little bit about here now this happened recently on April 6th and this was uh, here we're actually highlighting MVG 
here, friend of the show, uh, but a lot of people cover this. And here he said, hearing reports that Microsoft has blocked emulators in retail mode. Can't say I'm surprised, stick to dev mode where it's a walled off sandbox. And yes, that has been true. For anybody who does not know, from the original Xbox One all the way up to the Series X, you could essentially pay $20 to get your system into dev mode, which kind of turns it into a limited development kit, and you're able to run Homebrew on there. However, I have not covered this. For the last few years, there's been homebrew that has been making its way onto the retail storefront, so you don't need to go into dev mode, and you can just get these retail homebrew releases for free. Now, I know there's been a few methods of doing so here. I know initially when it happened, it was essentially uploading an application as private, and then you'd have to be whitelisted. So you'd have to find someone who has access to that application. They would have to whitelist your gamer tag, getting your email address, and they would send you a downloadable code and you download it from there. And there was stuff like RetroArch, there was uh, FTP, there was a few other applications. But in more recent times, from what I understand, it looks like uh, Gamer13 has really been heading it here. And from what I've observed and understood, I haven't tried them myself, but again, from what I've essentially seen, typically the meta would be you'd have to go to his website right here, you would look at the apps, and all the apps used to be loaded up on here. So you could just navigate to this site on your Xbox, and you could click on the app, and it would take you to the link, you would download it, and all of that. You couldn't just find them in the store directly, you'd have to go here, because they were pulled down so quickly. Uh, so even to the point where they were getting pulled down quicker and quicker, and as you can see, they even kind of had to not paywall it, but they even had to hide it in a way where you can't just go to the website here anymore and access it. You'd have to go into the Discord here, and then once you're in that Discord, you would then have access to the links. But from what I understand here, by the end, for the last like several months, the links were going down faster and faster and faster. And every time these links were going down, uh, Gamer13 would essentially have his developer account banned, and then he would have to pay another fee to make a new development account, and then he would have to upload all the apps on there again. It was going to be like a constant process. That's all to say here, I believe dev mode has been fine, because that is dev mode, but retail, obviously, Microsoft was taking issue with that because they were taking down those applications so quickly and so constantly. However, here it looks like Alana McKinney ended up posting this email that she had gotten. Now, from what I understand, she is a employee over at the Azure area of Microsoft, uh, but she had emailed someone over on the Xbox QA team about this and got this email back saying, hi there, thanks for getting in touch with us about the recent ban on emulators on the Xbox storefront. We appreciate your interest and concerns. To answer your questions, the primary reason for the ban is related to legal issues with Nintendo. While emulating itself is not illegal, it can be used to play games from consoles that are still under copyright protection without permission, which can create issues with Nintendo and its affiliates. Additionally, we take security seriously, and some emulators require permissions beyond what is typical for an app. This is exactly why I mentioned that FTP one. I, I will even say I'm injecting myself here, but I will say even when I saw like retail side FTP access was available, I was like, wait a minute, that that's I don't think that's going to end properly. <laughs> But either way, it says here, this could create a potential security risk, as these permissions can be exploited by bad actors to gain access to sensitive information. For these reasons, we have made the decision to ban emulators on the Xbox storefront. However, we understand that many users have dev mode enabled to run legal emulation. We don't seek to remove this ability, as it doesn't grant access to the retail components of the system, and is considered safe. 
Unlike Rito emulators, dev mode is limited to certain functionalities and doesn't have system read-write functionality. That said, we are still exploring ways to allow safe and legal emulation on Xbox. We are in talks with legitimate emulator developers to bring their software onto our platform while ensuring that all copyright laws and security protocols are followed. We appreciate your understanding and patience as we work through this issue. Our goal is to provide a safe and enjoyable gaming experience for everyone, as we are committed to finding a solution that meets those goals. If you have any further questions or concerns, please feel free to reach out to us. Best regards, and then they redacted the name here. I would say that a lot of this isn't surprising to me at all. Uh, I will say it was surprising. And again, this was more of a internal email here. Uh, so this wasn't really, how do I say, publicly facing. Uh, but Alana seemed to be get permission to, you know, put it up on Twitter here. Uh, either way, I was surprised they called out Nintendo directly on this. And to that, I was like, well, Nintendo kind of ruins everything here. But I'm also not too surprised here on this. Uh, let's see. All of the information in regards to the security risks and really just getting these off the storefront. Again, I'm not surprised by that at all. In all honesty, I'm going to be straight up with you all. I thought this retail homebrew thing was going to end worse. Um, no user, and I say user, not developer, no users has, have ever gotten banned for this. But I always thought that there would be a ban wave on users. But that seemed to never happen. It was always the developer accounts who were uploading these applications. However, here uh, they are saying that they're going to, you know, not touch dev mode. I'm not surprised by that at all. Dev mode is for dev stuff and tinkering. It's its own separate environment. It's separate than, you know, production net for Xbox Live. So that's going to be okay. The most surprising thing I will say here is they said, that said, we are, are still exploring ways to allow safe and legal emulation on Xbox. We are in talks with legitimate emulator developers to bring their software onto the platform while ensuring that all copyright laws and security protocols are followed. Uh, I'm thinking we might not see anything come to fruition with this. Um, as I'm reading this, I don't think this would happen, but I am literally imagining like if they released like a PlayStation or PlayStation 2 emulator and they made it where you have to take the CD or DVD of your game and pop it into the system to play it there, I think that would be something that would be okay in a way as long as it's not being redistributed with a bios of course um although i'm not sure if they would really want to ruffle feathers in that regard by allowing that application on there um so really there's a lot of games even like for example you know rare replay um those games have emulators running on them um they are sanctioned and everything that's totally fine so uh, this email did surprise me in that regard, but for the most part, I guess I'll say here, uh, with this recently, where uh, these emulators are just straight up not working anymore, where even if you have them installed on your system on retail side and they won't boot, um, that's essentially what's going on right now. Now, I did also want to mention that I know some people have also talked about and asked, well, what about Cody? What about VLC Player? These are available on the Xbox storefront. Why aren't those ones taken down? Why is it just the emulators? And really kind of clarify that a bit. Uh, you see, Cody and VLC Player, there's nothing wrong with those applications, and they've actually been, you know, officially sanctioned, officially put up. They've been through all the testing and everything on the Xbox storefront. So you can take a completely stock Xbox that is retail. You can fire it up. You can go. You can look up either of those applications, and you can download and utilize them. Now, mind you, this is also, you know, safe to say, I guess unsafe technically, but either way, what I'm saying is people aren't going to be oblivious to this. People know that these applications can be used and are used many times to watch and play pirated material. 
However, that material is not being redistributed with these here. Uh, the reason why those applications have been okay, but the emulators are not are really when it comes to the TOS. So the TOS, the terms of service on the Xbox retail storefront does allow media players such as Kodi, such as VLC. Those are okay. If they started bundling a whole bunch of, you know, free copyrighted videos and music and all that with them or allowing even easier access, that would be an issue and they would be taken down. However, these emulators themselves were not compliant with the terms of service. So I know I've seen a lot of people saying that, and keep in mind, this is my opinion here, but I've seen a lot of people saying this is an attack on emulation and I'm going to disagree on that because Xbox has been pretty user-friendly with developer mode. Like developer mode, it's been there for years. You pay your $20 fee, you get in, they don't touch it. There was at one point last year where there was uh, kind of like a ban wave in a way on dev mode, which freaked out a lot of people. Uh, but then there was so much uproar with that where that's almost one of those things, I don't know, I can't really tell if that was legitimate or not, like if Microsoft was really trying to ban everyone uh, or if it was just a mistake, but they claimed that it was a mistake and they started undoing it and dev mode has been fine. We've also seen in the email that they're not going to be impacting dev mode. I'm not really worried about that. Uh, the thing is, when it comes to the retail side of it, these applications on retail mode were never okay which is exactly why links kept having to be refreshed, the apps kept having to be re-uploaded and updated on there, and you couldn't just go to the store and download them easily. Uh, maybe you could if you were quick and fast enough on there, but for the most part, no, there's always been some kind of other trick to get them. Uh, like when they initially started going up on retail, like I said, you'd have to uh, find someone who had the app. They would have to whitelist your email associated to your gamer tag and send you a download code and you would download it through there. Almost like you were beta testing in a way, uh, kind of like a closed beta test or whatever it might be. So you'd have to do something along those lines. Uh, when it comes to the newer methods here, you'd have to go to a separate website and find the apps and like find the links on there. Uh, but even so, later on, those links kept going down faster and faster. So they kind of hid them in a way, put them behind that Discord server, and you'd have to join the Discord server. And then you'd have to get the application links and everything from there and do it that way. But then again, those applications kept going down faster and faster. And every time the applications would go down, the developer account that uploaded them would be banned. So a new developer account would have to be established and made and re-uploaded. And it's not like this happened like one or two times. No, if it happened like once or twice, it would be okay, an accident. But the problem is this keeps happening over and over and over. So it was against the terms of service on there. It's not illegal. I don't think it's a blow to emulation on there, but this is something that the retail side of it, the dev mode seems to be fine, but the retail side of it, there's always been an issue with it. And in my opinion, this is actually the better approach, I guess, the reason why I say that is because I was expecting, I honestly expected just a big ban wave on this. I was thinking that would happen one day. The developer accounts always got banned, to my understanding. But from what I understand, again, the users, if you're just a standard user, you grabbed one of these apps in retail mode and you were using it, users were not banned for using these applications. But I was sitting here thinking one day it was going to happen, one day it was going to happen. And from what I've seen, those bans did not come down, uh, but the apps did get blocked. The, the bigger issue at hand, though, is that 
this isn't just with these apps, this can in theory happen with any other app. So really with the way the Xbox series and the Xbox One are designed, this can be with digital titles, this can even be with physical titles because those really work and are packaged about the same, except you're using a physical disc as your key at that point. So the problem is in theory at any point in the future, let's say you have, I don't think this would happen, hopefully not, but Master Chief Collection, you have it on disc, at one point, Microsoft could just block that application completely. And therefore, even if you bought the game digitally, you have it on Game Pass, you have an active Game Pass subscription, or you have it on disc and you have an Xbox One or a Xbox Series X, you can't play that game. That is worrisome. That is worrisome. So that's something that understandably people have been pushing back against on Microsoft. But I will say on here, in my opinion, I don't think this is a blow to emulation. I think this is something that was just barely tolerated that is now not tolerated at this point i think there has been an issue that microsoft has taken up with these apps and them being distributed for so long uh because like i said they've been going down constantly on that regard uh but dev mode is not going to be affected on this so I would expect that at least. That's my opinion on it though. Now here's one of those projects that I had randomly stumbled across and I end up finding uh, this here, uh, which you can see this is for Rock Band 3 Enhanced it looks like, and this is Wii and PS3 Crossplay. Now the author states here I'm playing on emulators, but have also tested this on real console hardware. So super cool to see. So he is running this, as you can see, side by side. Uh, but it's funny because years ago, like years and years ago, I'd worked at a game shop and I was asked about cross compatibility on here. Although maybe not with consoles, it was more specifically between um, games, like if Rock Band and Guitar Hero can play together and why they can or cannot play together. Uh, either way, though, it looks like this is super cool where it's not cross game, that wouldn't work, but this is cross play super awesome here uh looks like in the description for this i'll just go ahead and read off as this plays they say this has been perhaps my biggest long-term goal since starting the rb3 enhanced project a few years ago crossplay is one of those things that would have been great to have as an official feature in rb3 rock band 3 they're talking about uh but never happened nor was there probably ever a chance it could happen even if harmonics won it crossplay was unheard of in those days with a lot of work and heavy reverse engineering it has finally been achieved for any Anyone interested in a high-level overview of the technical details, basically I am fixing up the incoming and outgoing packets on the Wii side so that the Wii uses the PS3's protocol, while not modifying the PS3 version or much of the networking code at all. Wow, okay. Uh, some PS3 packets contain platform-specific bits, such as the NPID, while the Wii has Wii platform-specific bits. So I have to essentially skip over them when parsing incoming PS3 packets on the Wii and write good enough fake data when sending outgoing packets packets to the PS3. The networking protocols on Rock Band 3 Wii and Rock Band 3 PS3 are extremely similar, so after fixing those troublesome packets, it just mostly works. There are still some issues with this, so it won't be released quite yet. For one, the PS3 cannot host. It will crash when the Wii joins. Second, as seen in the video, there is significant delay because the Wii doesn't play the intro that the other consoles do. Both of these issues are fixable, and I don't expect there to be any real show-stopping issues beyond there. I have verified that DLC customs and exports work. As long as both versions are playing the same MIDI file, there is no issue. Up next, getting Xbox 360 Wii PS3 crossplay working. 
360 is a completely different beast, and there are much more significant changes to the networking protocols, but I am very confident it can be done. Join the RB Enhanced Discord at this link here to stay up to date on RB3 Enhanced, recorded on Dolphin and RPCS3 using the Go Central custom rb3 server so super awesome i'll give that a like but uh, no release on here yet but just a really cool announcement overall some more stuff here i did want to throw in a little bit of dreamcast news where it looks like vmu emulation has arrived it says here in the latest update to dream shell you can now make an unlimited number of virtual virtual memory units on your hard drive compact flash sd and use them in game so cool Big props to SWAT and Megavolt for getting this working, and there is a link to the form here. Now reading this here, SWAT says, I worked a lot on stability and finally understood the reason for random crashes. Issue is in the G1DMA conflict with other subsystems, therefore for the time being, I switched the core to PIO mode. For it is, I did go there and I looked for the link for Dream Shell here, which it looks like the last release candidate was, uh, wow, back in 2017. So it looks like uh, this one, RC5, started testing in December of 2022. And last update was a few days before I'm recording this here, but looking at the change log, um, this is still cool to see overall. Let me uh, check for the VMU. Is there anything on here? Uh, here we go. Creation of is this a, yeah creation of VMU dump in game directory and renaming added support for VMU dumps in game directory. All right. I had to look over on the next page here, but looks like implement screenshot feature and fix VMU emulation. Uh, fixes for VMU emulation IDE driver finally fixed VMU emulation. Uh, fixes for fat writing and VMU emulation. So if anybody's using Dream Shell, uh, that's real neat to see. You can emulate virtual memory units. There's also been some news over the past month or two that has been freaking out people over uh, Wii U NANs that have been dying. So you just have dying Wii U's out there. Uh, and some of them are fixable. This is also a good reminder to back up your NAND on your Wii U. Uh, but in short, it seems to be related to the Hynix brand uh, eMMC storage that the Wii U uses. Now, not all of them use it, but the ones that seem to have Hynix are dying a lot faster. Like, as in, you got to keep in mind that the Wii U, it came out when 2012, so it is just about 11 years old at this point, and there's systems that are dying. Uh, not from being modified, not from being used and abused, just for existing. <laughs> so it looks like here, uh, Voltar has been doing not only some research on this, but also some additional work. Um, but he says here, in short, uh, I've designed a Wii U NAND interposer that will allow you to both dump right to your busted Wii U NAND as well as replace any bad NANDs with a micro SD card. I'll revise the routing a little more, but this is done. I'll spin these up and make sure everything fits, then I'll release the files for free for everyone. Thanks everyone, let's fix these busted we use. So it looks like this is it, it's going to be uh, just one of these kind of like printed, well, like a, a quick solder board in a way right here. And he even shows a little bit of the prototyping here, at least on paper. So this is exactly how it would look here, where it looks like you just really tap it in right next to the SK Hynix RAM, it's, not RAM, uh, but the NAND itself or the EMMC, uh, you would solder it up right here, you would solder it right here. Are there any other points that would be on this? Um, no, and then you would just have to, I mean, I would assume here you could either solder in a micro SD card itself, or really you could just solder in a reader, and then you can pop your micro SD card in there uh, to and from. 
so that seems to work. But he does state here that hopefully this gives you an idea as to how this interposer will install. The defective ENAND stays in place, no removal necessary. We just pull it off the bus by cutting a simple trace. Uh, my goal when designing this was to make it as easy as possible while accommodating the Wii U main board revisions that I own. Anyone with very basic soldering skills should find this easy to install. Software will have to catch up, but for now we have good hardware. Just to be perfectly clear, I will be releasing these 100% for free. That means that you can build your own, and also that modders will be able to install these for people who don't have the soldering expertise so you can get your Wii U back up and running. Will an SD card be fast enough? And the answer here is an EMMC and SD card are almost the same thing. Theoretically, the EMMC should be a little faster. But the ENAND on the Wii U operates in 4-bit mode, meaning that just about any SD card made in the past decade will be more than fast enough. So, super cool to see here, and I think this will be a good fix. Unfortunately, it's not going to be, you know, a software-only fix, like I'm sure many people were hoping for. Uh, but this doesn't seem all... As long as you can solder or you know someone who can solder, this doesn't seem all too bad. This is another one of those projects, like, I just found one day by kind of scrolling on Twitter and then it popped up and then it immediately disappeared so then I had to uh, look it up and I found it here but I just thought this was neat and I wanted to cover it here for this episode. Uh, this here is DPL Hook and this specifically is a plugin for the PC version of Driver Parallel Lines. It adds IMGUI powered menu with access to a custom free camera, vehicle spawner, weapon spawner, and much more. Features, you can change the player skin so it allows to play as any valid character skin, uh, weapon spawner, various cheats, air brake, so you can use special keys to move the player, default numpad section, a vehicle spawner, a teleporter, game speed control, free camera, time control, weapon editor, animation player, and a HUD toggle. So uh, just something quick here that I want to showcase on this just for this episode, but still, I, I like little projects like this. This is awesome. Now, I figured I'd end on something pretty high here, which is uh, revisiting the topic of the PicoFly from a few months ago that I covered here on Mod Chat. At the time, it was a rumor, and in short, it has been released. I'm not necessarily going to be covering that, uh, but just to wrap it up real quick, or I guess summarize it, uh, PicoFly was a rumored modification coming up that would be maybe possibly released for the Switch while it is released now, where instead of getting an actual like glitch chip or mod chip for newer Switches, you could get a off-the-shelf RP2040-0 and flash that with a custom firmware, solder it in accordingly, and you would have a glitch chip right there or a mod chip that you could install in your system. Uh, it wouldn't be, you know, super proprietary for the Switch, but it would be easy enough to get a hold of one of the chips and it would be really uh, off the part off the shelf parts as well uh, now the rp2040 just seems to be an absolutely magical chip because we've seen this work used for uh, not only the rp2040 zero but also the raspberry pi pico and on the pico we have seen pico boot for the gamecube we've seen uh, pico flasher for the xbox 360 that being a nand flasher uh, we've seen this same chip here uh, being used for the GB Interceptor, a Game Boy 
uh, I guess, capture card in a way, and uh, just so many other really awesome projects here. But I saw this on Wololo, and I wanted to get into this. This was McFly, which seems to be a promising open source RP2040 board for PicoFly designed to fit in the Nintendo Switch. Because the important thing to note is that the really like the Zero is really just a separate board, but the real guts of this is the RP2040, and as long as you can make it work, you can really get that onto any kind of form factor you want. Just reading off this here, since the confirmation has been made that the RP2040, a $3 microcontroller, can be used to hack the Nintendo Switch, news are pouring daily from folks on the scene, helping to make the modding process easier. One of the interesting ideas that's coming our way is from GBA Temp member, I'm gonna try this here, Salisay? We're going to try that. All right. I hope that works. Uh, who's building a modified RP2040 board that will fit inside the Switch. Even better, the hacker promises to release the specs of the board under a Creative Commons license. Now, covering what exactly McFly is here, McFly is a work-in-progress micro microcontroller board based on the RP2040 that integrates what's necessary to use the RP2040 for a Nintendo Switch hack while removing the unnecessary parts of the original RP2040 Zero to make the design fit inside a Nintendo Switch. One of the particularities of the McFly is that once you're done flashing it, you have to snap the USB part out of it so that it will fit nicely inside the case of the Switch. If you ever need to reflash the device, the two parts of the board are designed to be reconnected either via solder or a pin header. Salise doesn't plan to actually manufacture or distribute the board, only to provide the design for it for other people to manufacture the result. And just looking at it here, I mean, we have one image here, we have another here, we have one up top, and this is super cool to see. So the actual board seems to be quite tiny, and then you have this little breakout, like this board you literally break right here, but on this you have the uh, bootloader button, which essentially what you need to do is when you have this all connected, you would hold down that bootloader button, you would then plug this up to your computer, and it would recognize as a USB flash drive, where you then copy and paste over the PicoFly firmware, and then it will automatically disconnect once it has been flashed. At that point, you can physically break this off. Now, one issue with the existing just stock RP2040 Zero boards is that you do have to really, to kind of flatten and clear the board, you have to remove uh, two of the buttons, and you also have to remove the USB port. Uh, so the nice thing is you will physically break this off, but if there's ever a firmware update, you have to flash over to the chip itself. Uh, really what I would do right here, I would just take some wires and solder them between each of these right here uh, on the installed chip and then right here on the breakout board. And at that point, you've then uh, reestablished connectivity. So you can just, again, when this is all installed, you can hold down this button, you can plug it up to your computer, flash over the new firmware, disconnect it, uh, desolder the wires, and you're done at that point. I think that's a really cool feature right there. Now, they're continuing on here saying, although the design tries to cram as much as possible inside the tiny space, the MOSFET and or flat cable will still be required. The MOSFET needs to be as close as possible to the caps and in the current design cannot be integrated too close to the RP2040 board. Now, from the author here, introducing McFly, a bare-bones RP2040 board designed from the ground up to be compact, simple, and slim. With a USB port that breaks away after initial programming, the overall thickness of the board can be reduced to around 2 millimeters, 
An X and Y footprint of about 19 by 19 millimeters makes this stripped backboard suitable for internal installation in the switch. No stone was left unturned in the design of this board. With all of the features of a conventional PicoFly install present, including the debug WS2812 LED and the jumper to reset the glitch timings, as well as the inclusion of a 6-pin FPC connector designed to be used with PicoFly CPU flex cables. Because, yes, that is important. There's a... Well, actually, you can see a little tiny install photo right here. But essentially here, you could see this is about a week before when this had released, and you could see right here uh, that you can do without the flex cable but these custom flex cables for the switch are really used for the you know like customized mod chips uh, these are the same ones you know that the sx line of chips ended up using and so here you could either use a mosfet and solder in real carefully to accomplish this or you can get the cpu flex cable you can install it yourself and then you can wire it up manually to the zero continuing on though the six pin fpc connector designed to be used with hw fly cpu flex cables simplifying the installation and reducing the risk of damaging the apu despite the breakaway connector the mcfly can be updated too using a five pin 1.27 millimeter header the usb section can be either temporarily soldered back on or a pin header attached and held in place whilst the board is reprogrammed upon completion of testing the mcfly will be released under the creative commons attribution share alike license opening the door for design improvements and alterations by the community as well as commercialization by a third party at this moment, I do not plan to commercialize this design myself. I simply don't have the time to sell these personally. If you would be interested in selling these or know someone who is, please get in touch. So you have the design files right here. And then finally, just covering this uh, in regards to, uh, this is also neat to see as well too. Uh, this photo came out pretty quickly and these are all uh, really existing, I guess they're the same footprint as the existing proprietary chips available for the switch except these ones here as opposed to being proprietary they are as you can see uh rp2040 hw fly core i guess rp2040 uh, picofly chips uh, so this one here would be for the light this one would be for the core models this one would be for the oled models and really it's the it's the same footprint as those except the guts has been swapped around to the rp2040 chip the author finally said this won't be price competitive with a 2040 in low quantities as that's simply not possible nor will it be as easy to install as the inevitable hw fly pico fly board which is right here the goal is for this to be a community driven open source solution that simplifies the install to the greatest extent possible whilst still being reasonably low cost using off-the-shelf parts you can get from any component retailer so super cool to see uh i would say this would be something to be interested in here like i really like this uh this small custom footprint and everything uh, of course you know we have seen installs such as this little guy here with the actual stock board uh, but then also I mean there's so many options at this point now and this is the uh, the cool thing with the RP2040 just you can really swap the guts onto any like any physical footprint like I said here as long as you can get it all connected up and working well, that was about it for this episode of Mod Chat. I'm going to be honest, I'm a little bit tired, so uh, I'm going to wrap up here. I'm going to get this all edited and packaged up and bundled out and everything. But uh, I did want to say, I did want to extend, you know, a, a big thank you to you all again. Uh, I, I'll just take some time here at the end uh, to talk about this just because, you know, 
it's been cool. It's been cool doing this. I know uh, this series, it's gone through a few iterations. I know initially, oh, initially I didn't even have a dog back there. Hey, Lily, what's going on? Initially, this was just something that it was with uh, Dope Sona 930 and I, uh, and it was, uh, well, now he's known as Modbot, uh, but initially it was a podcast idea. And funny enough, even like the initial inception, like long before that, I'm talking like 2011, 2012 or so, uh, I remember back when uh, Johnny Guns, when he was uh, doing uh, Xbox 360 related modding videos, tutorials, and all that fun stuff, there was like one or two times we were talking, we were talking about collaborations and all that, and he was like, man, you know, maybe like a podcast, maybe something like that, and at the time, I wasn't a podcast consumer, so it, it was just, you know, no, nothing was there for me, it didn't resonate with me in that regard, uh, but what ended up happening was uh, a few years later, you know, uh, Dope Cerner and I, we, we started collaborating, we got close, we developed a friendship, and I brought it up to him, and I was like, hey, what do you think about this? Like, we do a monthly podcast of some kind where we just talk about modding. And at first it was just really our experiences and our opinions on things. And it was offline and it was just, you know, a static image on screen here. Uh, and it was just us talking for 45 minutes or an hour. And we also had Mod Chat Plus where we would get a little more personal and just talk about anything that wasn't related to modding. That kind of lives on in a way in my other episode or other podcast Mario's Minutes. Uh, but what happened was, I guess the first season of Mod Chat, you can call it, was just that. It was just us really like shooting the breeze, talking about what we liked, what we didn't like, our horror stories, all that fun stuff. Uh, then we started doing live shows uh, where we brought it live. We did a live audience here um, and we started doing that and it was fun. And there was something I also realized where like I got to learn how to live stream and all that. I actually realized at one point I didn't like live streaming. So that's why this isn't a live show anymore. Uh, but I would say that was almost like season two of Mod Chat. Uh, then season three came about when, uh, you, like, Dope Sonar, he just wasn't as interested in the modding aspect anymore. And uh, we all talked about it. And, you know, I kind of cycled him off the podcast, brought on uh, Paranoid Coder or Devin, and he did a great job. And he was here for, I want to say, a couple years or so. We still did the live show. It was still real fun. Uh, but then he kind of wanted to cycle out of Mod Chat as well. So uh, we did that. And that was the last live episode we did. And that's also when we started going live. That's when we started talking about news, newer things, developments, things that are kind of similar to this right here. Um, so that was kind of the history of it overall. But what happened was at one point, I think the last episode we ever did live was episode 55. We also had some guests on as well, too. And uh, I just remember at the end, I said, hey, uh, this isn't the end of Mod Chat, but I need to take a break. I just need to, uh, you know, just take a break from this overall because I've been doing this every month. And I even said, I was like, look, I know you all, like the audience really likes the live thing. I don't like the live thing personally. And it's nothing against you all. It's just, it's my own thing that I have to deal with. Uh, but Macha was on hiatus for, I think, just under a year probably. Uh, and then I ended up bringing it back and I brought it in this current form that you all see. And this is pretty much what I wanted. I said, I don't want to do it live. I would like to have a guest on sometimes or a lot of times it's just going to be solo. But when it's solo, I really get to dictate it at my own speed, at my own pace. I could even, I could sit down and record a mod chat in two or three sittings, or I could record it and then I could sit on the footage for two or three days and then I could come back and I could edit it. Um, I like off, like, I like video a lot more, um, a lot less than live streaming. I'm not really a live stream consumer. I'm not really a big fan of the whole live streaming aspect of things. So that's just, again, me personally, my own perspective on there. But either way, uh, that's how it's been here. So 
it's been fun doing this. Um, I've enjoyed it. It's been cool to see. Uh, I know there's been a lot of episodes that have gotten a lot more attention than I've expected with this. I think the show is probably in its best form it has been right now. It can improve. Don't get me wrong. Um, I would like to do more episodes, and sometimes I do more, but sometimes, you know, hey, I, I do everything by myself here, so it can just be tiring at times, admittedly, to do. But that's why I try to kind of feature pack these episodes whenever I do have them. Um, really, one thing I know I'd like to improve on, not only if I could do some more episodes, that'd be cool, uh, I would like to get guests on. Um, whether we're just talking about one specific topic or whether they are on for an entire episode here. Uh, since I have brought it back in its current form, I have not had a guest on. And unfortunately, I, I have tried to get two guests. Uh, one of them, uh, he just wasn't... It, it was kind of my fault. Um, I was recording that night and I said, hey, there's a topic on here. I would love to get your insight on it. Can you drop me... Like, Can you record some audio or video giving me your opinions on this? And unfortunately, he just said pretty much every single thing was against him that day. And he couldn't do a proper recording. I said, that's fine, man. And then there was another episode where I tried to bring another guest on. And uh, unfortunately, he was just sick and he was not able to record. Uh, so I just said, that's fine. We're just going to do this offline. But that's one thing I would like to work on. Um, I want to say the past 45 episodes, including this one, uh, there's been no guest on. So uh, I've tried at least tw like two or three times I've tried, but unfortunately it just hasn't lined up like that. Uh, but that's also why, again, I like to do the solo thing because at that point I am self-reliant uh, for better or for worse on that regard. Uh, I have to get on here, still do the episode, still do all this fun stuff. But at the same time, uh, I don't have to synchronize with someone else. So if I want to record an episode at 1.30 in the morning, I can record an episode at 1.30 in the morning. If I want to do one at 7 a.m., I can do it at 7 a.m. If I only want to record five minutes of an episode and do the rest of it the next day, I could do that as well too. So it all works out. Um, it's been real cool bringing this to you all though. And uh, I am excited to see, you know, I guess what the future will have for this podcast um again i'd like to do some more episodes if i can like more often in that regard because it seems like people like it and even a youtube thing youtube is the primary consumption um platform for this episode from my it gets the most views the most attention the most listens on youtube but recently youtube is actually just like with shorts you know they've been integrating in shorts and all that they've been integrating in podcasts and there's now like an actual like platform within youtube for podcasts um I think it's about time. Podcasts have been on YouTube for a long, long time. And it was really funny because when I saw it come up, I was like, oh, I'm already prepared. I've already been doing this. I've already been uploading podcasts. I've already been doing episodes. I've already been putting them in a playlist. And YouTube was actually smart enough automatically that they were able to take my like my podcast episodes and my podcast playlist for the two podcasts that I do and automatically categorize them. And I think that probably has helped out. They're probably pushing that a little more because I've even just noticed like analytic wise, um, like m the latest Mario's Minute got like m more attention than I expect. Like, it's not like it does gangbusters, but I looked at it and I'm like, really got this many? Oh, okay, cool. If it gets that many views and listens, that's awesome. But uh, I think that's going to be, it's not like the new wave, like shorts or reels or whatever have you, uh, but it's something that YouTube is probably going to be pushing a lot more. So I'm interested to see from a analytical perspective how that will go. Uh, either way, that is, uh, that's about it for this episode. Uh, I know this is probably going to be like an hour by the end of the year, but again, uh, one to get a little bit personal here, one to jam pack this episode, wanted to have a little bit more of a celebration for episode 100, right, Lily? People love this dog as well, too. Like, this dog is just fan service at this point. There's, uh, 
<laughs> there's people who will reference her and just like some people just know this show by like me talking with the sleepy dog in the background so it works real well <laughs> Anyways, that's about it for this episode of Mancha. I hope you all enjoyed watching this. I hope you all enjoyed listening. I hope you all got to be entertained, have fun, learn something. And I got to pick a keyword. I was thinking of numbers recently. And how about seven? If you use the number or the or or, or the, the word seven, if you use seven as a descriptor of some kind, uh, did you think that there were going to be seven Halo games? Because there were seven Halos that were announced, I think, in like halo 2 not like the games but like all like the actual like halo like weapons there we go uh have you seen the movie seven i actually have not i've heard very good things about it do you believe seven is a lucky number if you use seven in your comment on the youtube upload i'll know that you've made it to the end of this episode anyways for real this is mr mario signing off thank you all for listening and watching everyone until next time